Last Sunday, we, um, we wrapped up John's account of Jesus' trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. We looked at how Jesus had been flogged, basically whipped, uh, beaten, crowned with a crown of thorns. We witnessed how he'd been mocked. Um, and ultimately, he was reluctantly sentenced to death uh, by Pilate. He had attempted several times to free Jesus, to release him, but he, he failed. He, he couldn't do it. He was basically blackmailed and by the crowd and by the religious leaders and really had no choice but to do it or potentially have to answer to uh, Caesar Tiberius. In the next section, we will look at the crucifixion and death of Jesus. This is that uh, pinnacle moment in redemptive history, uh, the crucifixion and death of Jesus. But once again, John's approach, because that's where we've been, right? We've been in the Gospel of John for like a couple of years now. But John's approach is to the whole narrative here is it really is so different from the synoptics from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, rather than focusing on the humanity of Jesus and really the physical suffering of, of Jesus, he basically focuses on fulfilled prophecies, fulfilled uh, predictions uh, that support his main theme for his entire gospel, which is the Messiahship and deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, his whole gospel is about proving that Jesus is Messiah and is the Son of God, is God himself. And he also, in this account, he emphasizes the sovereign control Jesus maintained during his actual crucifixion and death uh, which also supports his main theme of the Messiahship and deity. And you might recall I said this to you over the last few weeks, but uh, John also showed us how Jesus maintained sovereign control over his arrest and over his trial as, re- uh, as well as just about everything else in the gospel. Uh, but here we see that once again. Those, those are the things that, that John, uh, he, he wants to promote, he wants to put forth before us. And, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have done the research or not, maybe some of you have, but um, uh, there, there are roughly 330 uh, Old Testament messianic prophecies, prophecies that deal with, with Jesus. There's more than that, but there's about 332 or 333 that actually deal with his first coming, his first advent, which is what we've been looking at, right? We're not looking at the second coming of Jesus. We're not looking at Revelation. Uh, and so, about 330 messianic prophecies that, that were literally fulfilled by Jesus during his ministry. Um, uh, Henry Lydon, who was a professor of uh, exegesis of Scripture, of Holy Scripture in the late 1800s at Oxford, he's the one that did all of the research and tallied up that number, about 332 or so. And someone actually did a little bit of math on what it would take for any individual to complete and fulfill all 332 messianic prophecies, what the odds would be. And it's literally one in 84 followed by 100 zeros. And (laughs) that's extraordinary. It, It would take God to do that. That's an impossibility for humanity. And, and, and in the reality of those fulfilled prophecies, we see clearly the Messiahship and deity of Jesus Christ because only God could have pulled that off. Uh, but in this particular text, we've got a whole bunch of them we're going to discover. John just threads so many fulfilled prophecies into this text. I, I think I stopped counting at 18 or so. So that's his approach. That's his angle. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, Please take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at 16b through verse 30. 16b through verse 30. I'm going to pray. Father, we humble ourselves now and ask for your guidance, for the power of the Holy Spirit to open our minds, our eyes, our hearts to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Uh, particularly at the cross through the crucifixion. And so give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive this morning. If there be any man or woman here who is not yet saved, we pray for that miracle of salvation. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray for sanctification, that you would uh, just increase our knowledge and understanding of what Christ has accomplished for us 
and that in that we would further rejoice in his work and continue to just to serve him and maybe to serve him in greater ways, to love him more. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin at verses 16b and 17. The text says, and this is what is written absolutely next right after what we looked at last week. It says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So immediately after Pilate sentenced Jesus to death and turned him over to the executioners, he was given his crossbar to carry. They wouldn't make him carry the entire cross. They would have the vertical section already in the ground, but they would make them carry the horizontal section. So they gave him that part to carry. And he goes out of the praetorium. He goes out of the city gates to the execution site. This is what John tells us happened next. In stating that he went out bearing his own cross, John is is emphasizing something very important here, the fact that Jesus is still in command of the situation, just as he was during his trial and arrest. In other words, he, he went out of his own will. He went out under the bit of strength that he had left, but it was something that he willfully did. Uh, Gerald Bourchet wrote, Jesus was, was not a helpless victim, but the shepherd king laying down his life for his sheep. So the idea here is that Jesus takes this, and he's just been beaten so terribly and whipped, laid open, filleted almost like a fish, and yet he goes over and picks up his crossbar, throws it over his shoulders, and heads out for Golgotha. He does this of his own will, his own sovereign initiative. He did it. He didn't, wasn't forced to do it. He is doing this of his own, of his own will and choice. What does um, the statement bearing his own cross remind us of? What is that? Does that trigger something in your mind? Maybe an Old Testament story of something that played out. It, it, it reminds me of, of the young man Isaac, the son of Abraham, who bore on his back the wood that would be used in his own sacrifice. There's an illusion here that's made. And what Jesus is doing in this humble submission and bearing this cross on his back is an allusion to what you know Isaac, the young son of Abraham, Abraham had to do when he was a young man. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 6, is an allusion to Jesus carrying on his back the wooden cross that would be used in his own sacrifice. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, that event in Genesis 22, you must know that God spared Abraham's son and provided a a ram for the sacrifice at the very last moment. Uh, But there's a distinct difference between what happened then and what happened with Jesus. You know, God did not spare his only begotten son at the cross but sacrificed him as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, right? But there is an illusion there made. So this is one of the many things that's in this text. Now, Rome forced condemned prisoners really to carry their own crossbars through town. Now, we know Jesus took it up on his own initiative, but Rome nonetheless made you carry it through town all the way to the execution site. And the reason why they did this was this was kind of like uh, public hangings that we had in our country years ago. It was a great deterrent against crime. And if you think about it, you see a guy carrying his own crossbar through the middle of town, and he's all pulverized and beat up. You know he's going to carry it to where the rest of the section is so he can be hung on that cross and die a brutal death. That's going to dissuade you from maybe making some wrong choices against Rome. Uh, It was a great deterrent. MacArthur wrote, the sight of a beaten, bloodied, terrified prisoner carrying part of the instrument of his own execution illustrated that crime does not pay, right? The execution site was called the place of a skull or Golgotha. You know what the Latin word for it is? It's Calvary. That's, That's what we usually refer to it, right? It's Calvary's hill. So it's Golgotha. In, in Aramaic or in, in Hebrew, in, in Latin, it's called Calvary, and that's usually what we refer to it as. Now, some poli- believe that this place had been given its name because skulls could be found lying around there. 
like it was a, a kind of boneyard or something like that. The interesting thing is there's absolutely no historical evidence to support that theory, none at all. Uh, plus, leaving corpses or parts of corpses, skeletal remains, any of that, unburied, totally violated Jewish law. Deuteronomy 21.23 clearly says that you must submerge under the dirt. You must bury your place in the tomb. You don't want what's left to be seen by people, to be smelt by people. It's, it defiles people and renders them unclean under Jewish law. So this is a place of Jewish execution. This is a place of... Roman execution, and it's very not likely that there were bones and stuff laying around. Several uh, early church fathers held a kind of a strange theory about how it got its name. They believed that Adam's skull had literally been found there. Now, Adam lived roughly 6,000 years ago. Uh, it would have been 4,000 years before Jesus. So uh, the, the likeliness of his skull being found there is just really nil. And there's, there's no evidence to support this theory as well. It's likely called the place of a skull because of its shape and, and its geography may have represented that of a skull. Uh, there's a hill on the north side of the city that has a, a skull-faced cliff. It's called Gordon's Calvary. Uh, it's named after Charles Gordon, a British Army officer who had a dream that allegedly revealed this spot as the precise location of Jesus' crucifixion. And he was there during the 1800s, 1882 to 1883, doing research, and that's when he allegedly had this dream, and that's where this spot, uh, he claims, was revealed to him as the spot. Is it the legitimate spot? I, I don't know. I, I, it could be. But somehow it has some kind of markings on it that look like the eye sockets and maybe nose socket of a skull. The other potential site is, is just west of the city uh, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. Uh, maybe you've heard of that. That's still there today. So there's a couple of sites that this could have been at, maybe either one of those or maybe a completely different place. There are at least two fulfilled prophecies here in 16b and 17. There are at least two. Um, I'm not, this is really, really hard to find the prophecies here. If John hasn't just plainly listed them, I look for them anyways, but it's very difficult to find them and then trace them to where they, they come to. Commentators don't spend a lot of time on this. They're trying to get to the meat of the text and not show us all these connections, but you know what? I like the connections. So I, I worked on it hard. But in any case, there's probably two things that we see fulfilled in this verse and a half. Uh, when they took Jesus and led him toward Golgotha, Isaiah 53, verse 7b was fulfilled. And that is the text that says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Get the idea of Jesus taking his crossbar as the lamb of God. He's headed up there of his own volition and will, but he's being led by Roman soldiers to his slaughter, to his execution. And so that awesome prophecy is fulfilled right in that moment as he goes up there. And when Jesus went out of the city gates. It says, or he went out. That means he left the praetorium. He left the city. He went beyond the gates. He went out of Jerusalem. He's on the outskirts. A typological prophecy in Exodus 29, 14 was fulfilled. Uh, when a, I don't know if you guys are very familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the Mosaic sacrificial system, but when a sin offering was made for the people, the blood of the bull had to be taken into the most holy place and sprinkled over the mercy seat. And then the rest of the animal's body, the entire carcass, had to be taken beyond the entrance of the camp, beyond the entrance, outside of the gates to be burned. So in order for a, a temporary kind of atonement to be made, Two things had to happen. The blood had to be, the animal had to be slayed at the altar and the blood had to be taken and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then to complete that transaction, which is a legal transaction, this is how I will forgive you, God said. Then the body of that animal had to be taken out and burned. If you didn't take the body of the animal out and burn it outside of the city gates, that atonement was not complete. What has Jesus done here? He's gone outside of the city gates to suffer and die, to make that atonement 
for forgiveness. So there is a parallel, a direct parallel with him going out of the gates with that text in Exodus 29, 14. It was literally fulfilled here. Listen to how the author of Hebrews makes the parallel. This is interesting. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, he wrote, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So the author of Hebrews just ties it right to Exodus 29, 14. So those are two things, plus you have that allusion to Isaac in, those, in that verse and a half. Now let's move to verse 18. And this is how John puts it. John really spares us all the gory and gritty details. He's focused on something completely different here. If you want a, a, a more graphic account, go read Matthew. But if you want the most graphic account, go read Psalm 22. Yeah, Psalm 22 that was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. And we're going to cite some verses from that and show the messianic prophecies fulfilled. Verse 18, there, he says, he's talking about Golgotha, he's talking about Calvary. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. When Jesus arrived at Calvary, the executioners crucified him between two other men. In Matthew 27, verse 38 says they were robbers. So back then when you robbed a 7-Eleven, you got put to death. I don't know if they had 7-Elevens, but they had to have some kind of thing. They had those bazaars and things where you could buy incense and lamps. Uh, but if you robbed someone or some place, you were executed. That was a capital offense. These two guys that he was crucified with were robbers. Now, crucifixion was the preferred method of execution or capital punishment by the Romans. Uh, it's primarily the method they used in that day. And I don't know if you know the origin or history of crucifixion, but it actually originated in Persia. It was the Persians who had first uh, developed it and kind of perfected it. And, and it had been passed down through the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, uh, and then the Romans finally adopted it. Uh, what a great thing to pass down. What a legacy. But the Romans actually took crucifixion to another level. They went way beyond the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, way beyond the Persians. They, they actually turned it into a kind of science, and in, really, and so much of visual art is perverted, but into a kind of perverse, warped art form. Uh, MacArthur wrote, the Romans had perfected the art of prolonging the victim's agony as he was slowly tortured to death. Because that's what crucifixion is. It's a torturous, slow death. But the Romans really worked on getting the most time out of the situation. They would position the body in such a way and nail it to the beams in such a way that would intensify the physical suffering and yet simultaneously uh, prolong death. It was almost as if they would compete with one another. Like, you know, you had three guys being crucified at the same time. It wouldn't surprise me if the executioners were competing with one another. Well, let's see who can get theirs to live the longest. And, and this is, they were, I mean, they didn't just put people to death. They, they, they turned it into sport. And so they would literally just manipulate the bodies and do what they could to get the maximum amount of suffering and length of life unto death as possible. They would literally compete. It was just a, a twisted thing they would do. And in most cases, in most cases, the victims would hang on their crosses for several days. They would last a couple of days, probably about three days, because how long can you go without food and water? How long can you go with hardly any ability to breathe? They would usually succumb to exhaustion or dehydration or shock or suffocation uh, when the victim could no longer use his legs to raise himself into position where he could actually breathe. Now, you have to remember, your body is being suspended uh, by these nails in your arms and in your ankles or feet, and, you know, gravity is pulling you to the earth. And so you have to, and, and as your body is sagging, your lungs are being pressed on by your internal organs and your rib cage. And so you have to kind of somehow 
strengthen your legs up and keep supporting and holding yourself up. But what are you actually pushing against when you hold yourself up? That nail that's blasted through your ankles or feet. And so it was just a, a terrible, terrible. If you didn't hold your body up, it's almost like how we hold our breath. If you didn't hold your diaphragm in that position and use your abdomen and all that and your feet to keep yourself in position, the minute you started to sag, you couldn't breathe. And so after about three days, a person just couldn't hold themselves up anymore. And they would kind of start sagging, and then they would suffocate. Now listen to the, the fulfilled prophecies and predictions that are represented in verse 18. There's a ton of them here. When they crucified him, that phrase, a typological prophecy in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9 was fulfilled. The Israelites had once again in this narrative In that section, they had complained against God while they were in the wilderness, and they did this pretty regularly. Well, we don't want manna anymore, or we want this, or we want that. They would rail against God, and God would would discipline them. And in this instance, God sent poisonous serpents, poisonous snakes into their camp, and many Israelites at that time were literally bitten and died from these snakes. I think they were desert adders or something like that. And when the people finally came to their senses... They went to Moses and they repented. We're so sorry for what we've done. You know, God has been good and we haven't been and all that. And God instructed Moses to create a bronze serpent or some kind of a serpent, a snake out of bronze, out of that alloy, attach it to a pole and then raise it up in the camp. Maybe you're familiar with the story. If a bite victim looked on the bronze serpent, he or she would be healed instantly. If they refused to look at the serpent and they had been bitten, they would die of the poison. And the raising up of the bronze serpent on a pole is a representation of the raising up of Jesus on the cross. All who look on Jesus by grace through faith shall be saved from the poison of sin. Those who refuse to look on him shall die in sin, shall face judgment, shall suffer the wrath of God in hell. Jesus actually tied the bronze serpent incident in the wilderness to his future crucifixion and death during his conversation with Nicodemus. In John 3, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You recall when we went through that a while ago? Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. That's one fulfilled prophecy there. It's a typological or a type of. Uh, When they crucified him, that phrase again, Jesus' prediction in Luke chapter 24, verse 7 came to pass. He said, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners and be crucified. Here, the Lord describes who would kill him and how they would kill him. And this happened before it happened. And sinners refers to those who are outside of the Jewish community, Gentiles, non-Jews. Who actually killed Jesus? The Romans, right? And what are they? Outsiders, Gentiles, non-Jews, or as the text says, sinners. How did they put him to death? Crucifixion. If Jews had put Jesus to death, they would, have, they would not have crucified him. They would have stoned him to death. They didn't use the method of crucifixion. The Romans did. The Jews would have just kept throwing rocks at him until he wasn't breathing. You think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. So that prediction that Jesus made, who and how I'll die, who will kill me and how I will, came to pass in this crucifixion moment. Another one here, it says, when they crucified him... Uh, Jesus' prediction in John chapter 8, verse 28 came to pass. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. He's talking about the Son of Man. He's talking about the Son of God. He's talking about, you will know I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And then he says, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Here, the Lord promises that His crucifixion and death will be accompanied by signs and wonders that will testify to who He is and to who sent Him, the Father. What signs and wonders occurred at the cross? Well, when He died, we we don't have an account of them in John's account. He's going from a different angle, right? 
Matthew 27, verses 51 to 52 says, And behold, this is when he died on the cross, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom, meaning somebody couldn't have ripped it. They would have done it from the bottom up. This was a supernatural tearing. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a 20-foot, 30-foot tall curtain. And it says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So when Jesus is crucified and dies on the cross, his death in that moment is accompanied by supernatural signs and wonders. That earthquake, the tearing of that, of that curtain, that heavy 30-foot, 20, 30-foot tall curtain. And there was even a, a resurrection that occurred of some Old Testament saints who had fallen asleep or passed away. And so those are those marking signs that say Jesus is God and Jesus has been sent from the Father. And it's fulfilled right here as he dies on the cross. Another one here. Uh, when they crucified him, that phrase is the one we keep focusing on. Jesus' Jesus's prediction in John chapter 12, verse 32 came to pass. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up, he's not talking about his ascension. He's talking about being lifted up on a cross. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, right? Who were the first people to be drawn to Jesus and saved at his crucifixion, right at the moment of his death or just, just within minutes after? Who were the first people to be saved? You might be thinking, well, you know, we got to fast forward to the day of Pentecost and then we see the Spirit come down and all that and there was 3,000. No, 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 those weren't the first people to be saved at the death of Jesus Christ. Were they Jews? No, it wasn't Jews that were first saved, drawn to Jesus and saved when he died. It was the Roman officials who were standing at the foot of the cross watching over Jesus, the centurion and his soldiers they were filled with awe as the earth shook, and they all declared, truly this was the Son of God, right? Matthew 27, verse 54. Jesus' crucifixion and death has resulted in the salvation of, of people from every tribe and tongue and will continue to do so until he returns in glory. So Jesus' words in John 12, 32 are fulfilled and being fulfilled now as people are still being drawn to him and saved from every tribe and tongue. That's another prediction fulfilled. And then since John's account doesn't give us any graphic detail, I wasn't really wanting to get a lot of graphic detail to you, but I thought it would be beneficial for us to look at all of the messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Psalm 22, and they are graphic. They are graphic. Again, let's think about that phrase, when they crucified him. Several messianic prophecies in Psalm 22 were fulfilled. And they parallel better, obviously, with Matthew's more graphic account. Now, I just want you to think about Psalm 22 for a moment. It was written by King David roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born. And roughly 600 years before crucifixion was invented. What I'm telling you is that David wrote this, and it has vivid detail about crucifixion, and yet the man knew nothing about crucifixion because it did not yet exist. This is a divinely given revelation and prophecy to David about the crucifixion of Jesus, given 1,000 years before Jesus is born, 600 years before crucifixion is invented. This is just marvelous. Verse 1 opens with a notable line in Psalm 22. You, you, you know this line. Jesus quoted it on the cross, did he not? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David, a thousand years before Jesus is born, a thousand and thirty years before he's crucified, literally writes out what the Lord is going to say. That's spectacular. Jesus literally said that on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 46. At the very end of that moment on the cross, he cried out. He cried it out in Aramaic. And we know it's translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, he said it two times 
That was fulfilled from Psalm 22. In verses 6 and 8 of Psalm 22, David prophetically describes how Jesus would be treated by others as he hung there on the cross. Listen to what it says. I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. That's that's verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 22. Listen to the striking similarities between that text and Matthew 27, 39 to 44. Listen to this. Here's Matthew's account of how it played out a thousand years later. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from that cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he, if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God, if he desires him, for I am the Son of God. He almost, these chief priests almost say exactly what David said they would say a thousand years before. Well, if, if, the, if God loves him so much, have him take him down off the cross. And it also says at the very end of, of that historical telling of that prophecy that's fulfilled at the cross, it even says that the robbers who were crucified with him, they also reviled him. Both of them. And we know one of them repented. But at first, they were both mocking Jesus with the religious leaders and everyone else who was passing by. It's extraordinary that David, a thousand years before, captures the ridicule, the mocking, and those sorts of things. And we see them played out in Matthew's account. Unbelievable. In Psalm 22, verses 12 through 21, David prophetically describes Jesus' abusers as strong bulls, ravening and roaring lions, dogs, and wild oxen. Because I'm sure that's what it sounded like to Jesus as everyone was ridiculing him while he hung on the cross. But David describes all of those people who were mocking him as strong bulls, ravening, and roaring lions, dogs, and wild oxen. That's amazing. In verse 14 of Psalm 22, David prophetically describes the physical torment Jesus would endure on the cross. I am poured out like water, which basically means he suffered total and absolute exhaustion. To pour something out in the Old Testament gives us the illusion of somebody having all their strength and energy and every, every bit of everything they have being poured out of them. I am poured out like water. Jesus suffered exhaustion. The unnatural position of his body, because your body's not meant to be hung like that, the unnatural position of his body caused, what does it say in verse 14? His bones to be out of joint his heart to become as what? Melted wax within his chest. The idea here is total exhaustion. He's just wiped out from trying to hold himself up after the beating he took and being nailed to the cross. David describes it in vivid detail a thousand years before. came to pass. In verse 15, David prophetically describes Jesus' failing strength and raging thirst. He said, My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And we know Jesus was thirsty because of what he said at the end of John's account here. And so here's David again, thousand years beforehand, describing that. And in verse 16 of Psalm 22, you see something that's just at another level here. You, you literally, David knows nothing about crucifixion. He's never heard of it. It's not a word in anyone's vocabulary yet. It doesn't exist. No one's ever been put to death in this manner. Knows nothing about it. And yet in verse 16 of Psalm 22, he prophetically describes crucifixion as the mode of Jesus' execution. As he says, and this is the Lord would be saying this, they have pierced my hands and feet. And that's not all. But wait, there's more, like an infomercial, right? Verse 17, David prophetically describes Jesus' taut, emaciated body. 
It's as if the Lord, a thousand, a thousand years later, would look down upon his own body as he's hanging on the cross, and he would say this, because he's so taut, his skin is tight, he, he's got n- nothing left on him, all his muscles been torn open, he's emaciated, like as if he's been starved to death. He's up there on the cross, and it's as if he looks down and he says, I can count all my bones. What does that mean when you can count all your bones? It means you're emaciated. I'm not. I've got quite the belly. I can't see my rib cage. But with Jesus, he looks down and he can see his ribs, all his bone structure because of how he was suffering. This is just, Psalm 22 is just incredible. How many of you knew that Psalm 22 was actually about the crucifixion? Maybe when you go back and read it, I don't know, your own time, you'll see the Lord there. Lastly, That phrase again, they crucified him, but not just that phrase, with this one, with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them, another prophecy was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 12, and what does it say? He was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he was crucified alongside sinners. Now let's move to verses 19 through 20. Pretty extraordinary, huh? Just in that one verse, so much. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. When the Romans sentenced a person to crucifixion, they would write their crime on a placard, and have some other guy carry it out ahead of the guy carrying his crossbar. So you can imagine with me, if if you were sentenced to crucifixion, you would be walking along the road up the trail holding your crossbar, but about 20 feet ahead of you, 10 feet ahead of you, there'd be a guy carrying a placard that had your crime listed on it. And he would carry that all the way up to Golgotha, all the way up to Calvary, while Jesus is walking behind him. That's what they did. And when they arrived at the execution site, that placard would be nailed to the vertical beam just above the victim's head. And that's why we have that imagery that kind of captures it. You can see it there. I don't know why these guys don't have it. They would have had it as well. But you can see in the middle there. That's the idea. And yet, since Jesus was innocent, right? Verse 6 of this chapter, verse 4 of this chapter. Back in chapter 18, verse 38, you have Pilate literally saying, I find no fault in this man. And Pilate literally put an innocent man to death. Jesus had not committed sedition, done anything wrong. Since he was innocent, Pilate had no crime to inscribe on his placard. He had, he had nothing to write. He had to come up with something. He couldn't put on there sedition. He couldn't put on there blasphemy like the Jews were telling him because that wasn't a punishable offense according to Roman law. So what he decided to do was get revenge against the religious leaders who had blackmailed him. He inscribed the Lord's placard with the highly offensive words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And those aren't offensive words to us. We say, hallelujah, amen. But to the religious leaders, that was like cussing them out. That was a serious thing that he, he basically had chiseled onto there. And the religious leaders had vehemently rejected Jesus as their king. I mean, every time Pilate said, shall I release your king? They said, no, give us Barabbas. He's not our king. They hated the idea of Jesus being king. And so for, for him to put that on there was very insulting. And to further insult them, Pilate deliberately wrote uh, where Jesus was from, Nazareth which was a dumpy little armpit town in Galilee with only one notable feature, right? A Roman outpost. Oh, hallelujah. I mean, the Jews hated Rome. They hated Roman outposts. They hated every Jew that did not live in Nazareth hated Nazareth. It was a scorned and despised little bucket of a town. It really was. And and so to, to put that on there, If you think about Nathaniel, he was one of Jesus' disciples. When he was first told about Jesus, he asked where Jesus was from. And his buddy Philip, who began to tell him about where Jesus was from, he said, said, he's from Nazareth, right? You remember the story? And what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of that place? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that just gives you an idea how people felt about Nazareth. They couldn't stand it. 
The religious leaders hated Nazareth. So did every Jew who didn't live there. They did not believe, the religious leaders and most of the people did not believe that Messiah would come from such a place. There's no way he would come from such a place. Now, we know he was born in Bethlehem as prophesied in the Old Testament, but he did live in Nazareth and worked with his father there as a carpenter for many years. Pilate not only wrote King of the Jews, but where he was from. So this was just like one big insulting sign hanging above Jesus. And, and not only did Pilate write King of the Jews from Nazareth, those things, but he put it in three languages, right? He put it in three languages so that everyone who passed by would be able to read it. And you have to remember what time of year it is. This is Passover, the, the biggest festival and feast they have. There are roughly two million people in the city for this festival, and there's only actually 150,000 that live in Jerusalem at this time. So all of these pilgrims were coming from all over the Middle East, all over the place, up in the Roman Empire, all over to come to this feast. And Pilate literally puts this inscription in every language so everyone who passes by can read it. And not only did he do that, but he put the cross up in a super visible place. It says, near the city. The Romans usually crucified criminals along the highways so that the public would see the price to be paid for resisting or challenging Rome's authority. There must have been a major thoroughfare, something major near Golgotha, near Calvary. There's no way Pilate would have done this out in the country somewhere where people wouldn't have seen it. He put it in the country, but right on the outskirts of town where people would pass by all day long. And with all these Passover pilgrims literally sleeping outside of the city, tens of thousands of them couldn't sleep in the city because there was no room in the city. Think of the story of Jesus where there was no room for him in the inn when his mother was pregnant and had the baby, right? There was no room in the city at this time. So you had all these pilgrims camping right outside of the city in tents, literally. So Pilate puts this inscription in three languages, highly offensive to the Jews, puts Jesus up next to those two robbers in the most visible spot out there so people all day long would walk by and see that sign and read it. That's what he did. That was his revenge. By writing Jesus of uh, Nazareth, the king of the Jews, Pilate was expressing his contempt for the Jewish people, implying that such an individual, this pulverized Jesus on the cross, was the only kind of king the Jews deserved. How did the religious leaders respond to Pilate's inscription? Did it bother them at all? Yes, verses 21 and 22. So the chief priest said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. <laughs> All of Pilate's attempts to free Jesus had failed, but, but his first crack and attempt at inflicting damage on the religious leaders by insulting them worked absolutely marvelously. He was really good at that. They were infuriated by his inscription, absolutely infuriated. Like a school bully, they, they went to Pilate and tried to muscle him. Don't write Jesus of Nazareth as our king. Take it down and put this man said that he is the king of the Jews. And I, I, love, I love Pilate's response. Verse 22, the end, uh, yeah, verse 22, he says, What I have written, I have written. This was literally his way of saying, I'm not changing a thing. Go kick rocks. Now, MacArthur gives a great insight here. He says, here again is an example of God using sinful men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Neither Pilate nor the Jewish leaders believed that Jesus was the king of Israel. Yet the animosity between them ensured that the governor would write an inscription proclaiming that Jesus was Israel's king, as in fact he is. That's the sovereignty of God working right through that situation. That's that compatibilism I was telling you about last week. Now let's look at verses 23 and 24a, a little bit bigger section here. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Prior to being nailed to a cross, the victims would either be stripped naked or down to their, like their loincloth, literally almost naked. And the soldiers removed Jesus' outer garments, the head coverings, belt, sandals, his outer robe, and they divided them among each other. Four equal parts, so we know there were four executioners. Each man basically got an item, but when they removed the garment that goes against his skin, his tunic, they noticed that it was... It was like a big onesie without a zipper. I don't know how you climbed into this thing, but he got into it. Maybe it was obviously open on the bottom, and so you could pull it over you from the bottom you know, down. And so they noticed this thing had one piece. It was all sewn together. And I, I don't even know why they were interested in this stuff other than the purpose of fulfilling prophecy, but the thing that's closest to his body would have had the most blood on it and everything else. Maybe it was some kind of a twisted thing they did to remind them of the guy they put to death. But in any case, they didn't want to tear the tunic. So they chose to cast lots to see whose it shall be. Casting lots was like, was like throwing dice, but with small rocks with little markings on them. It was really the same thing as casting dice or throwing dice, but they just had different markings, and they were like little pebbles. But it was literally a form of, of gambling in some circles, especially in Rome. Now, again, the soldiers acted from purely selfish motives. And yet their actions furthered the sovereign plan of God and validated the Bible's accuracy by fulfilling yet another messianic prophecy about Jesus from Psalm 22. So this is another one from Psalm 22. We find this one in verse 18. We don't have to turn there because John quoted it verbatim in verse 24b of our text. He simply says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast Lots. There's yet again another prophecy fulfilled at the crucifixion. Now let's move to 24b and 25. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So while the Roman soldiers were gambling and having a good old time while Jesus is suffering on the cross, they were also boozing it up. Verse 29, they were drinking some sour wine. It was a preferred drink of them. While they're down there doing their thing, John introduces a sharp contrast. There was another little group of people at the foot of the cross. They were actual genuine worshipers. They were down there sobbing and weeping and worshiping Jesus. There's three Marys. There's the sister of one of these Marys. And then there's the one whom Jesus loved, John. Right, We see him in verse 26. The three Marys were the, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was the mother of one of Jesus' disciples. His name was James the Younger. It's not the brother of John, James and John. It's the other James that was in the group. And she was also the mother of a, a man named Joseph, uh, Mark 15, verse 40. She's known for keeping vigil at Jesus' tomb after his death, after his burial. She did that with Mary Magdalene, Matthew 27, verse 61. Uh, she also discovered the empty tomb with Mary Magdalene on Easter Sunday, uh, Matthew 28, verse 1. And she was one of the women who tried unsuccessfully to persuade the apostles that Jesus had risen. <laughs> they wouldn't listen to these women for some reason. Uh, most men don't listen to their wives, so I understand it. Uh, Luke 24, verse 10. Now, Magdalene was not Mary's last name. Everyone thinks, oh, her name was Mary Magdalene. People didn't actually have last names back then. At least Jews didn't. Uh, she was from Magdala, located on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Tiberias. It was a small fishing village, Magdala, and people who were from Magdala were called Magdalenes. Okay? So she was, it, it would be better to say that this is Mary the Magdalene. That would be a better phrasing of it, but we just abbreviate it. Now, some believe she is the uh, woman of the night, which is a polite way of saying prostitute. Uh, she is the woman of the night who entered the Pharisee's house. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. Entered a Pharisee's house to anoint the feet of Jesus with ointment and her tears. 
And we see this in Luke chapter 7, verse 37 to 50. It's a wonderful story of something that happened. There's some real worship happening there, and it wasn't happening with the Pharisee who was critical. He actually invited Jesus to dinner. Jesus obliged him and went, but he was critical. And this woman comes in and, and worships the Lord. It was a beautiful thing. The, the, the problem is, is that she's not identified by name in that text, so there's no reason to believe that that prostitute woman was Mary Magdalene. There's no evidence of that at all, but people are like, oh, she's a prostitute. It's like, well, I don't know where you come up with that. Maybe church tradition or something. In the next chapter of, of Luke, in chapter 8, Mary Magdalene is actually identified by name. She was one of the gals whom Jesus had delivered from a demon. In fact, she had seven demons in her. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 2, that's where you see Mary Magdalene in Luke. That's who she was. She had seven demons in her. She was like the exorcism on steroids, right? Seven demons he cast out. She was with Jesus from that moment to his death. She literally was side by side with him, a, a great disciple of the Lord. Also present was the sister of Jesus' mother, Salome. It is not pronounced salami. Mike Boyd did that about a year and a half ago, and I've never gotten over it. He called a woman salami. I'm like, she is not a lunch meat. That's messed up, man. Mary actually had a sister, and her name was Salome. She was married to Zebedee. You know who Zebedee is, right? Zebedee is what? He's the father of the sons of thunder, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. So Salome was also a disciple of Jesus. She's the mother of James and John. She was there at the cross. She was also there. Um, she had done some interesting things at one time walking with Jesus. She demanded that Jesus make James and John his left hand and right hand rulers in his kingdom. You might remember that story. That was that awkward moment. Uh, but she did something really cool after Jesus' death. She purchased spices for his burial, and those burial spices were insanely expensive. Mark 16, verse 1. And lastly, you had Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was also there at the foot of the cross. Uh, for her, this was the moment when Simeon's prophetic words rang true. Who's Simeon? Well, when... Mary and Joseph had brought little newborn baby Jesus to the temple. An old godly man, an old righteous man named Simeon, he came over to bless the couple and to bless little baby Jesus. Jesus is just a little tiny infant here. Listen to what he said. This is just remarkable. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And listen to what he says to Mary. At this point, he looks Mary in the eyes and says, and a sword will pierce your very soul. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. As Mary, the mother of Jesus, stood there at the foot of the cross, and watched her beloved son suffer and die. Just a, a horrendous, bloody, brutal death. Her soul became pierced by the sword of deep sorrow and grief. Let's move to 26 and 27. What Jesus does here is just spectacular. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, he's talking to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had already passed away, leaving Mary as a widow. As Jesus was bearing the weight of our sin, as he was suffering the awesome wrath of God in our place, as he's dying on the cross, he looks down at his mother and entrusts her to John's care. Behold your son. This is your son from now on. And he looks down and he looks over at John and he entrusts John to her care. And he says, look at her. Behold, that is now your mother. 
That is now your mother. The end of verse 27 says, And from that hour the disciple, I know it's John, John took her to his own home. In other words, he did exactly what the Lord said. He cared for the Lord's mother. MacArthur wrote, This may seem like a mundane thing to be concerned about in the hour of his greatest sacrifice, his great pain, but the beauty of the Savior's love and compassion for his widowed mother in the midst of his own excruciating pain reflects his love for his own. Isn't that good? Now let's look at 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and look at the parentheses, the parenthetical statement, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. After Jesus takes care of his mother and John, he entrusts them to one another, he omnisciently knew that he had one more, just one more out of the 300 and something, one more messianic prophecy to complete. He had one more thing to fulfill in order to fulfill all righteousness, right? Matthew 3.15. We find it in Psalm, uh, verse, uh, Psalm 69, verse 21b. It says this, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Isn't that marvelous? This is, this is yet another psalm that was written a thousand years, prophecy written a thousand years before Christ is born. Jesus knew that by saying, I thirst, the soldiers would be prompted to give him a drink. When he said it, they took a sponge, right? They put it in that, they put it in that jar of that sour wine. They attached it to the end of a hyssop or tree branch, and they, they hoisted it up, up to his mouth, Right? And they gave him a drink. Now, this was not the same beverage offered to Jesus just prior to him being nailed to the cross. That actually happened. The beverage, that particular beverage contained gall, and it was used to kill pain and partially anesthetize the victims so they wouldn't squirm around. So in other words, before a person was nailed to the cross, they would give them this drink, this kind of wine that had gall in it to numb the pain. That way they could just nailed them to the cross as they were kind of inebriated. They wouldn't be squirming. And yet, when they offered this to Jesus, it was a kind of a courtesy they did. Wow, how nice, right? When they offered it to Jesus, he refused it. Why did Jesus refuse the wine with gall as he was nailed to the cross? Because he didn't want anything to alter his senses. He wanted to experience with the totality of thought and clearness the wrath of God. He did not want to be inebriated. He did not want to be buzzed. He did not want to be numbed. He wanted all of his senses intact so that he could absorb that full punishment and experience every ounce of it with the proper frame of mind. That's why he did it. Now let's look at our last verse, verse 30. When Jesus had re received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When the sour wine entered Jesus' mouth, he said the three sweetest words I think I've ever heard. It is finished. According to the original Greek, he actually shouted this. It is finished. He shouts it with every tiny little bit of strength that he has left, any energy that he has left, he, he pours into shouting this out. He's, he's declaring it as a victor. It is finished. He says it loud so everyone can hear. It was a, a shout of triumph, a, a shout of victory, the, the cry of a mighty conqueror. The work of redemption the Father had given Jesus was now complete. That's what he means. I have finished the work you gave me to do, Father. It is finished. Every requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin had been appeased. Our forgiveness, our righteousness, our, our reconciliation with God had been secured with this declaration. And the head of that old ancient serpent had been bruised. The devil 
was now defeated. This is the culmination. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. There's another prophecy. After he shouted, it is finished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, which means he died. I love John's use of that phrase, gave up his spirit. It shows, again, that Jesus was in sovereign command of his own crucifixion and death. It shows that he gave up his life of his own sovereign will. It's like Jesus didn't succumb to his injuries. Jesus, in a sense, gave up living in that moment to make that atonement. He stopped living. John 10, 18, Jesus told his disciples that this is precisely how he would go out. He said, no one, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, to give it up, to end it. And I have authority to take it up again. That's a reference to resurrection. And he says, this charge I have received from my Father. Closing. In 13 and a half verses, we have identified roughly 20 prophecies and predictions that Jesus fulfilled during his crucifixion. I, 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 I don't want to lie to you. We didn't uncover everything that's here. He did much more at the cross, but we just looked at about 20 of them. We also discovered examples of how he exercised sovereign control, sovereign command over his crucifixion and death. He literally doesn't die until he gives up his life. And that's what he did. Why, why did John go in a completely different direction than the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Why did he meticulously incorporate these prophecies, predictions, and examples of divine sovereignty into his account of Jesus' crucifixion and death? So that we would know without a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is is the divine Son of God, that Jesus is God, that we might believe in Him and have life in His name. Do you believe in Him and have life in His name? I hope so. If not, His finished work, He declared it to be finished, if not, His finished work has not been appropriated to you. And if you, if you remain, if you remain in unbelief, if you keep rejecting him, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I want to live my life for me and, and, and quite frankly, just keep making a mess of it. If you remain in this unbelief, willfully rejecting Christ, then you will die in your sins. One day you will die in your sins. You will face judgment. You will be made to pay for your sins in hell for all eternity. The alternative is extraordinary. You can either pay for your sins or Jesus paid for your sins. I mean, God will punish most severely those who trample underfoot the work of His Son on the cross. If you think that God was really thrilled to kill His Son for a bunch of losers like us, you're wrong. He slaughtered Him. It broke His heart. Jesus literally taught that those who hear the gospel and reject it experience greater condemnation than those who have never heard it. He said that if Sodom, and you all know that city, you remember that story, if Sodom had, had seen Jesus and heard the gospel and saw his miracles, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Even Sodom. But Capernaum, a city that he did all of these things in, rejected him consistently. And he said, they shall receive a greater condemnation than Sodom. 
this short section of Scripture has provided ample evidence of who Jesus is and of what He accomplished for sinners like you and me. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, not in five years. You're very prideful and presumptive. You don't even know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you have this afternoon. You don't know if you'll make it to that gender reveal. And yet, I'll just keep putting it off. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your unbelief. Believe in Jesus. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Have life in His name. Because there is no life in any other name. It's only Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. There is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus. Repent and believe in Him today, even now. Pray to Him. Call out to Him for mercy. He will listen. He will listen. For those of us who have already believed and are experiencing and enjoying life in His name, we have been reminded once again of what Jesus did on Calvary for us, and we should rejoice, shouldn't we? We should rejoice that He was crushed there for us. that He bore our sin, that He gave us His righteousness, that He absorbed every ounce of God's wrath against us. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful thing He's done for us. We should rejoice. And we should live for Him and live for His glory. A life of gratitude and thanks. I'll leave you with a great reminder from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 and then We'll, I'll pray and we'll sing. Listen to this. It says, and this is Paul saying this, and this is for every one of us here who's in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.